Please be seated. And let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just get their attention by waving, they'll get one into your hands and, and you'll be able to follow along and have the Word of God enter not only the ear gate but the eye gate and have double the effect. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift to the Lord to you today. I, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, speaking of Jesus. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, or what kind of passes for a mountain in Israel. We, I mean, here we are, we're right up against, you know, the Rockies and all, and these are real mountains. Uh, so often there you go and you see Mount Zion and Mount Gerizim, and they're just kind of like a pretty good-sized hill, actually, by our standards. But they're mountains by their standards in that part of the world. And so he goes up onto this mountain that is right there in the area of the Sea of Galilee. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as we study it tonight, it is considered to be the greatest sermon ever preached. And who could ever contradict that? Preached by the greatest preacher or teacher that uh, has ever preached or who has ever uh, taught. We so often, you know, we see the black letters of the two first verses of chapter 5 and, and, uh, and it looks like some preliminaries that we just kind of need to rush through so we can get to the red letters, what Jesus actually spoke. And, uh, and there's a, you know, a legitimate um, kind of desire related to that. But I'm convinced that if we don't understand verses 1 and 2 and what is in this kind of flyover country related to Scripture in terms of these two verses, then we will never understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We have absolutely no hope of making any sense of it at all. And so it tells us here in these first two verses the context in which the sermon was taught. All sermons have a context. And uh, second, who the uh, sermon was preached to, who was Jesus' audience, who was he aiming at here, and then third, the purpose of the sermon. I'm going to take a moment and just look at the context in which the sermon was taught. Jesus is currently... At this point in his public ministry, ministering in the northern kingdom or the northern area uh, of Israel known as the Galilee. So he's somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. He's somewhere near the city of Capernaum. Jesus is at this time at the height of his popularity. Jesus' public ministry lasted three and a half years. Those three and a half years are... Um, uh, divided into kind of three one-year segments. There was uh, what is known as the year of obscurity, the first year of his public ministry. His second year was known as the year of popularity. His third year was known as the year of opposition, when uh, the religious leaders threatened by his popularity began to oppose him and ultimately leading to the cross. He is at the height of his popularity at this particular point in his public ministry. As we read here and as we read in the other Gospels, uncountable, huge multitudes of people are coming to listen to every word that he has to say. 
and, and uh, just the knowledge that he is in a particular village or in a particular uh, section of the shore of the Sea of Galilee instantly produced crowds of 5,000, 10,000 uh, just upon the word that he was there. This was the hunger for him the desire to come and be exposed to him. People were traveling on foot a hundred miles as was kind of seen earlier in in Matthew's gospel, but elsewhere in the gospels as well. People are traveling over a hundred miles on foot in order to be healed of their diseases, their torments, to be delivered of their demons, to be healed of their epilepsy and their leprosy and the cleansing of that. And he's healing them all. And as they come in this huge mass of human need, I mean, you just picture... Do you know what it takes to get a leper to cover cover a hundred miles on foot? Someone with cancer to cover a hundred miles on foot to come in. It might be the last thing they do, their last effort, the last thing they're going to take a try on is to somehow get into contact with this one who's called the Son of God, and he might heal me, he might cleanse me, the leper might say. And they're coming with this kind of need and this kind of desperation. It is a human sea of people coming to him. And the Bible says that his power being exhibited at that time, as soon as one would be put in front of him, he would lay his hands on them, they would be healed instantly, and no sooner would that person be pulled away than the next person would be thrown in front of him to be healed and one after the other after the other from the moment that the sun arose and the city began to wake up until very very late in the day this is the environment that Jesus is ministering in at this time demon-possessed people being delivered of their demons and so you just picture the scene of of man's incredible need, his incredibly varied need, the desperation that uh, accompanies this kind of thing, all of it coming into contact with Jesus, and then immediately as as he touches them and ministers them, the, the joy of having been healed or having been delivered. And so you have this incredible combination of desperation and joy all of it happening at once within uh, three square feet around Jesus in, in, that, uh, in, in his ministry. And he's turned the entire region of the Galilee into an uproar. Everybody knows about him. Everybody's coming to him. Everybody's bringing their friends to him in, with all of their needs. And so the whole section of the northern section of Israel there in the Galilee, this wonderful, holy, sanctified uproar. And you have to remember that at this time in Israel's history, it had been 400 years of silence since the prophecy of Malachi until the coming of Jesus, 400 years of no prophetic utterance. So it has been quiet spiritually for a very, very long time. And suddenly Jesus comes on the scene as he begins his public ministry following his water baptism and 400 years of this crying out among God's people, where is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And it had been met with silence for 400 years, all to produce a um, an appropriate 
quietness and appropriate anticipation for the great voice that God was going to send into human history, the voice of his son, and then now here he is, and everybody realizes what is happening now dwarfs what was happening at any time in the history of the children of Israel, even in the Old Testament. And so here is it, and you've got to get it in your mind, the human need that is stretched out in front of Jesus in all directions and, uh, and just overwhelming and heartbreaking to look at. And it really, I think it breaks our heart as we kind of get ourselves in that place and how much more it must have pulled upon the heart of Jesus. And so that's the context of the sermon. Who was the sermon spoken to? You notice as he says there in verse uh, 1, that he spoke it to his disciples and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him and then he opened his mouth and he taught them. It is a sermon that is directed to his disciples, to us as Christians. And, it, and this knowledge of this, who this sermon is directed at, is absolutely critical for understanding and, and, and the, what the sermon is aiming at, what it's intended to do. And the great crowd that was around Jesus during uh, the sermon, that heard the sermon as he was preaching it, made up doubtless of a mixed multitude of Christians and disciples and those who were not Christians uh, at all, both the saved and the unsaved. But the sermon is entirely directed at Jesus' disciples, to those who were followers of him in the same way that you and I are Christians here tonight. In other words, this sermon is not for the world. This sermon is not, it is not for the unsaved. And if we fail to recognize this, we will come to exactly the wrongest, I know it's not a right word, but the wrongest conclusion that we can come to concerning this sermon, and the whole world is filled with Christians who have come to this wrong conclusion about the Sermon on the Mount because they have failed to look at verses 1 and 2. And the wrong conclusion that we never want to come to about the sermon is that somehow Jesus is giving mankind some nice moral principles to live by and that if we will live by these nice moral principles that we can somehow make ourselves acceptable to God, we can somehow make ourselves righteous enough before God that we can then warrant an entrance into heaven on the basis of our own works. And again, there's a whole world of people, saved and unsaved, who view the Sermon on the Mount in this way. And it is a complete violation of this vital revelation that is given to us by the Holy Spirit in verses 1 and 2. In this sermon, Jesus instructs us as Christians concerning how we are to conduct ourselves in the light of the fact that we are already Christians, in the light of the fact that we are now Christians, that we are citizens of his kingdom. It is a sermon on how we are to think and how we are to act and how we are to speak and how we are to 
conduct ourselves because we are already saved. It is not a way for us to now conduct ourselves in order to become saved. It is not live like this and you will be a Christian. It is because you are a Christian now, live like this. And every single one of us as Christians, once we became born again, the Holy Spirit came into our lives. The Bible says we were delivered out of the power and the government of darkness, and we were translated into the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. So we've left one kingdom. We knew the rules of the kingdom of the world of the flesh and the world and the devil. We learned how to navigate it. We learned how to be successful in it, so-called successful in it, so successful that it all drove us to Christ, right? But we learned the rules of the kingdom, and so we became players in it. We became con men in it. We thought we could navigate it and work the system and all. So we've been moved from one kingdom now into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, And now we need someone to tell us, show us the ropes, tell us how all of this operates. How does one prosper in this kingdom? How does one represent the king of this kingdom who has made this kingdom accessible uh, to me? How should I conduct myself as a citizen of this kingdom, a representative of this kingdom? And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us exactly that. Those are the questions that Jesus is answering here in this sermon. Now, the purpose of the sermon is this, not only that we as Christians would know and understand the laws of the kingdom of God that we are now a part of, and there are laws that are part of God's kingdom. And, and so we want to learn those things. We want to understand those laws of this kingdom that we've now become citizens of but and and then how to bless how to please our king but also notice and it's so critical to notice this in verse 1 that while Jesus delivered this sermon to his disciples he did so with his eyes on the multitude and you see that phrase right there and it's so critical to recognize it seeing the multitude, he then delivered this message to the disciples. In other words, the idea is not uh, only that we would be blessed as Christians, but also so that all of the, the desperate and needy world around us would see a different kingdom in us and then come into that same kingdom with all of their messiness and all of their needs. Christianity is not a bless-me club where I get into this Christian subculture or I come into the kingdom of God, not to speak of it negatively in any kind of a way, and then it becomes all about us. We are always coming into this kingdom of God, but our heart remains upon the multitudes that are not here yet. Our eyes are still upon those who are not saved, longing for them to come into this kingdom in the same way that we have, out of a love for God and out of a love for our neighbor. So important. If you don't leave with anything else tonight except one thing ringing in your ears in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, it will be successful. This was delivered to disciples. Jesus spoke to his disciples with his eyes on the multitude. 
His eyes are still on the multitude. The people that are not yet saved, not yet in his kingdom, his heart is still there with us to be sure, but it is still upon them as well. And so he speaks this to us, not only that we would be blessed in this kingdom, but that then we would be a place as the body of Christ where this great multitudes of people in need and their messiness and their sinfulness and their need for healing and spiritually and physically, where are they going to come? They're going to come to who is the body of Christ today, which is Christians all around the world. He spoke to the disciples with his eyes upon the multitudes. Two other details before we get before we run out of time and don't even get to uh, the red letters. Sometimes you, you hear about Jesus, and in, in again, in reference to the mountain, he goes up on a mountain. And you take a t- tour to Israel, and we go to the Mount of Beatitudes, which is probably the region that he was in. And it's not that high, again, not that high of a mountain. We would say, it's a pretty good hill, but not going to be a mountain. <laughs> Come to California, we'll show you a mountain. But it is a mountain for there. And in that, sometimes as we read about Jesus' teaching in the area of the Galilee, And we wonder, how can he speak and thousands hear him all at one time and hear him clearly, clearly? Uh, Sometimes we can speak, and if the environment is noisy enough or dense enough for the humidity of the air, whatever it might be, you can speak and you're screaming at the top of your lungs to be able to get 50 people to hear you. And, but in this great place there in Israel, the side of that Mount of Beatitudes, he probably took a seat and a great crowd was down in front of him. And so he's able to speak forth the word of God kind of right over them. And there's something about that area of the Galilee, something to do with the water, something to do with the dryness of the air or whatever, but sound really carries there. You can be up on the Mount of Beatitudes... And you actually have to be very, very careful related to this, especially around the Sea of Galilee, because when you say something there, that if I said something there just with my wife as an aside, you'd hear it in the back row where Larry is right there. I think I'm having a private conversation that's going all the way down the side of the lake because of the, the way that the sound carries there. And so that's, that was kind of the physical um, characteristics of where Jesus gave the sermon. Second, I want you to notice that when he delivers this sermon, he sits. And the point is made in the passage that he did that. He didn't sit in order to be more comfortable. In those days, the teachers would sit and the students would stand. That was the way that it was. So when a rabbi sat... It means class is in session. He's going to open his mouth now, and he's going to teach us. So when Jesus sat down in this setting, it was a communication to the students. The class was in session, and now he is going to teach them. And he began his sermon, this great sermon, with what is known as the Beatitudes here, beginning in verse 3. Before we get into it, we studied this several weeks ago, and a two-week absence on my part in between, so I'm not going to do any kind of an in-depth thing related to it. I'll refer you to the teaching on that Sunday morning. But 
this early section of the Sermon uh, on the Mount, spoken of the, the Beatitudes. And as I mentioned on that morning, um, the, one of the great ways to understand the Beatitudes is that these are the attitudes that ought to be in our lives as Christians because we are a part of the kingdom of God. Before he ever gets to actions and doing and all of these things, which he's going to get to in the sermon, he begins with our heart. He begins with our attitudes. Attitudes are important. Uh, you, you and I all notice a bad attitude pretty quickly, don't we? So the child comes home from school or whatever, and they've got a bad attitude. Do they have to say, I've got a bad attitude? You pick a bad attitude up so quick. So you've got a bad attitude. Step out of it. So there's a vibe that our life, our li- and we think, oh, it's just, it was just terrible. This is something that's, you know, uh, only characteristic of six-year-olds. You carry an attitude through life, too. This is apparent on you and me as any six-year-old. So we all got have an attitude. We're all giving off a vibe. And it can be a good attitude and a good vibe or it can be a bad one. And so God wants us as citizens of his kingdom to have an attitude that is something where people look at and say, this is a good, this person has a good attitude. And I mean, they consistently have a good attitude. And so what in the world is their life about? And it causes them to be curious about the God that we serve. And so these are the Beatitudes, and he repeats nine times in uh, this particular section of verses 3 through 12, the word blessed. And so you have the recipe here for a blessed life, for an oh, how happy life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's ble- it, 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 this speaks of humility as opposed to pride. Nothing to live up to. You see, nobody who's like walking in humility feels like they have to live up to that. <laughs> You're in pride. You've got to live up to that all of the time. It's a very, uh, humility is a wonderful place to live in, in life. And God says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, there won't be any pride at all. It'll be all humility all of the time. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this speaks of the fact that we, we mourn because we care, as we've seen before. And it mean, the fact that we mourn over the world, over our family, over our friends, over their spiritual needs is an indication that we still care about them. And so this speaks of maintaining an, an empathy and a compassion for the world. And we are to maintain, that is to be there by the Holy Spirit within our lives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God, when we have this kind of a sanctified mourning for people, the price that they're paying. I mean, the, the worst person who's unsaved yet, we were in their shoes at one time in our lives. And don't you look, I mean, the longer we walk with the Lord and the closer we get to the Lord, and even while he's making us more and more like Christ, it doesn't make us prouder. It doesn't make us arrogant. It makes us in awe of his grace, what he's doing in our lives despite ourselves. And then we look at the world and we see the world apart from Christ. 
and the horrible price that people are paying because of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and the fallenness that all of us are born into. That's a healthy, healthy morning. And when we experience it, this kind of morning, God will comfort us in that place. He will meet us there. Blessed are the meek that speaks of gentleness, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, We don't have to fight the world for the world. One day it's all going to be delivered to the child of God, to the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This speaks of holiness, of a, a strong desire and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness or holiness, for they shall be filled. Every one of us as Christians has the relationship with God that we want. Isn't that something? The Bible says, God says, you draw nigh to me, I will draw nigh to you. It is in our court. The relationship that each of us has with God tonight is the relationship that we've determined to have. He'll meet us anywhere. He'll meet us and give us the deepest relationship that we want. That's wonderful to realize. And so this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, whatever that want, we want of that, he's going to meet us there and he's going to fill us with that righteousness. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As we're merciful to people, of course, God is merciful to us. And then people are merciful to us as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So it's not only outward purity, but inward purity. And inward purity allows us to see God. Sin in our lives is like sometimes you'll see a four-wheel drive pickup uh, going through town or a Subaru. Um, and they've been up, you, you know, maybe in the winter they've gone up to the snow country or they've been off you know, off the trail and everything, and it's just covered with dirt. I mean, you can't, you don't even know how anybody can see outside of the windows, you know, and you turn on the windshield wipers and you lose, use up all of your spray and everything, and there's still, the windshield is all murky and you can't see through it. And that's what sin does in our lives. It makes, it, it blurs our vision of God. It, it, it doesn't allow us to see God in all of his beauty and, and in all of his glory. And so blessed are the pure in heart because for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we're persecuted, now, now listen, there's no blessing in being persecuted for being a dummy or being obnoxious, or being arrogant or proud. That's not persecution for righteousness' sake. This is persecution for simply being a Christian and walking in the things of the Lord. And when the world persecutes us uh, for living for Christ, then that becomes a badge of honor, of the fact that they recognize we are part of another kingdom. Sometimes you'll see where those little chicks will peck another chick because they're a little bit different. And, uh, and here that chick is about to get pecked to death. Well, it's kind of like that. They spot the fact that we are different. And uh, listen, bullying in schools, by the way, I hate that. Wasn't that a, a tremendous article in the Modesto Be here this last week with that girl in Turlock? And they're bullying her and people came alongside to bless her and help her. There's just no reason for that at all. It's just, it's just a terrible thing in a human heart to feel the need to do that with somebody. 
But bullying, persecution, that kind of thing has gone on forever. And, of course, we're not the helpless little chick that's there that gets then pecked to death by everybody else. God is inside of us. But the fact that sometimes people in the world turn against us as a result of our faith in the Lord, the more dark the world gets, the more evil the world gets, and and then the more persecution they meet out against us, it actually becomes a badge of honor. It's the fact that they recognize that we are different in a significant way and in a way that is a threat to their lifestyle and brings conviction upon their lives. And so how could it be a blessing to be persecuted? Well, when you realize uh, what the cause of the persecution is and where it's coming from, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil for you, and here's a key word, falsely, um, uh, for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so here's this beautiful section of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. Now, as we saw this morning uh, a little bit, and we looked at here Jesus as he continues the sermon and declares us as Christians to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon. And it is a sermon that has a propositional statement. A propositional statement for a sermon is, what is the single great point of this message? And so we've already gone over that related to that, and then everything else ties to that. So Jesus isn't just putting a bunch of, like, random thoughts together. It's not like, um, you know, like the poets in the 60s and stuff where they would head into this stream of consciousness and just kind of anything that came into their mind, you know, uh, and everybody's loaded and they're clicking their fingers here, you know. And, wow, what did he say? Oh, you know. Well, that's not the purpose of sermons. And so a sermon is to impart truth to people that are wanting to know the truth. So he's building a point here. And he'll, he'll break away from this in a moment to talk about something else. But he's still flowing in the same, in, 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 from, uh, in, in a flow in his sermon. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. He declares us to be the salt of the earth as Christians, we and we alone. The Mormons are not the salt of the earth. The Jehovah Witnesses are not the salt of the earth. The Muslims are not the salt of the earth. The Buddhists are not the salt of the earth. The Hindus are not the salt of the earth. Secular humanists are not the salt of the earth. Is there any other name that I can use to offend somebody else in this room? I know how to, I know how to preach a sermon and not say anything. I say it for a reason. We alone are the salt of the earth. No other religion is ever going to do or be what we're intended to do and be in this world as Christians. We are irreplaceable. And we are irreplaceable in terms of the advancement of God's kingdom Because, as we saw this morning, we possess the one thing that makes us distinctive from everyone else in the world, religious or secular, and that is the Holy Spirit inside of our lives. Do you realize what a miracle it is to be born again by the Holy Spirit? We have the Holy Spirit 
in us. In the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies in that great temple was in the Naos. It was the Holy of Holies, the inner compartment of the temple. And only the high priest could go into that room. And he could only do it one day out of the year. And he could only do it then after offering a sacrifice for his sin. And when the Bible declares us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, he is saying we are the holy of holies. We are that inner compartment Because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of us put together as Christians all around the world. And that makes us different in a way. What do you want? You know, we would say as kids, well, I say this and this times infinity. And that settled the issue. We can't even put words into the to describe the distance between a life that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and a life that is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit in terms of the capacity to do something for God and make a difference for God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are the salt of the earth and we and we alone. Now, What we're going to do is we're going to give you a button. I'm a salt of the earth, and I'm better than my Hindu neighbor. And uh, then you can wear it around. No, we don't. We know who and what we are, and we know what we aren't. Every one of us does as Christians. There's no pride. There's no arrogance out of that. It's just maturity as God's people to look at it and say, this is the truth about me. And nobody is going to, going to be able to do in this world what we do and what we need to do. Again, remember, Jesus isn't saying this to us so that we can just say, well, good, I'm glad I know a little bit more about me and who I am in Christ Jesus. He is telling us this as his disciples with his eyes on the multitude. And so with sobriety... And with a sense of, of responsibility and a sense of recognizing what an opportunity is ours because of Christ to say, yes, that is true about us as Christians and that is true about me as a Christian. And so I embrace this being the salt of the earth. And he says if the salt loses its flavor... And then how will it be seasoned? If a salt loses its saltiness, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown down and trampled underfoot by men. How many Christians, when when you look at a Christian and we lose our saltiness by disobeying God's word, by backsliding, becoming lukewarm in our relationship with God, when you see a Christian, or maybe it's been a part of, you know, your Christian experience, and you look at it and you lose your distinctiveness, you lose your saltiness, how long do you stand against the tidal wave of the world and the accessibility of sin and, and cynicism and all of these kind of things? We have no hope of standing. He's going to talk about us being light of the, the world in, in just a moment. And, the, and, the, and, he, and he talks about salt, he talks about light. They're two different images, but the, the thing that they share is that they are distinctive and they are influential 
in the environments that they are applied to. And that's what he's telling us that we are. And so we are influential. We say, all right, how am I influential? As we saw this morning, but not everyone was here this morning. You say, how can I be the salt of the earth? What does that look like in the nitty-gritty of life? And he has just shown us in the Beatitudes. And as the Beatitudes become our character, then, then, then this, as he describes in terms of salt and light, this will become our influence in the world. We don't have to huff and puff and blow the house down. This isn't our own strength. This isn't us saying, okay, I'm going to roll up my sleeves or I've got to, you know, get everybody in a headlock at the bus stop tomorrow and preach them the gospel whether they want to or not. I've got to knock them out, you know, and cast the pearls before swine or before they're even ready to, to receive the gospel and all these goofy things that we put pressure on ourselves. And when we feel like we have to do this by some artificial means or some means of our own, then that's where the church gets crazy and we start to come up and say, well, we're going to make ourselves distinctive in, as Christians in the United States of America by coming up with this rule about makeup or this rule about, uh, you know, skinny jeans or this rule about, you know, eating or this kind of thing. We come up with all of these, you know, goofy kind of rules that, and, and then that we impose then upon ourselves and we just marginalize ourselves as a result. And we put ourselves under so much pressure. Okay, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to earn my stripes. I've got... It's, you can't save one person. If you have 80 more years in your life and your responsibility, sole responsibility is to save your unsaved neighbor on the basis of your ability and those talents, you'll never do it. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and as the Holy Spirit produces this character in our lives described in the Beatitudes, then the result is it makes us salt in, in the world. And if we don't, if, if we lose our distinctiveness, we try to become, reach the world by becoming like the world, and, and we look and that, feel like that's what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, then all we're going to do is get trampled underfoot. The world is just going to walk all over us. And that's what it does to that kind of a Christian. He said, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so he speaks to us of, as being salt of the earth and the light of the world and in connection here with the Beatitudes. And as we looked at all of that, of course, here uh, uh, this morning for a little fuller handling if you uh, want that. Then in verse 17, he does shift gears. And he wants us to know as his disciples, he wants us to know what his attitude is toward the law of Moses. Now, some, here we are in a room where probably 98% of us are Gentiles, non-Jews, and maybe 100% are Gentiles in this room. So we can think to ourselves, what in the world does it matter to us, what, you know, learning what he thinks about the law of Moses? 
But it's very important for us to understand as his disciples, his attitude toward the law of Moses. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. And that's a reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is referred to by the Jews today as the law, the law of Moses and the prophets, the prophetic scriptures. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I'll tell you, I wish I had the new King James Bible, uh, but that they had left verily, verily. For verily, verily, I say to you, there we have it. I'm feeling very pleased at the moment. For verily, verily, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he tells us what we're to understand there in verse 17. And we're to understand that Jesus did not come into the world to destroy the law and the prophets. He would be accused of that, but it was never true concerning him. Jesus never violated He never disobeyed not one of the 613 commandments that make up the law of Moses. He did routinely and deliberately violate the man-made traditions and interpretations of the religious leaders of his day that they had come up with and then elevated it above the word of God. Jesus had no patience with, or maybe he he felt no um, compulsion to respect man-made ideas concerning religion or God, especially those that violated uh, God's word. And so he never violated, never ever violated the word of God, the commandments of Moses, but he readily did uh, violate the traditions of the Jewish religious leaders. The law of Moses has not been destroyed by Jesus or the new covenant that he has established with his blood. The law of Moses is still in effect in the world today. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians and to understand how it is in effect. Well, how is the law of Moses? Despite the fact that Jesus has come into the world, he has provided us with a new covenant in his blood, and then someone like like me tells you that the old covenant is still in play, it's still in force, how in the world can that be so? The Apostle Paul wrote of the purpose of the law, in many places in the New Testament. But let me read one to you in Galatians chapter 3. He said, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, that is, Messiah, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which it could have given life, truly righteousness would have come, been by the law, speaking of the law of Moses. 
But Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given, uh, be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And therefore the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So one of the purposes of the law is to expose every single one of us in this world as a sinner, as being less than perfect. I don't know how many of the Ten Commandments or the other 603 uh, laws that made up the law of Moses it would take for someone to read to you before you realized, ah, this exposes me as a sinner. I think just one reading of one law in the Old Testament, no matter how obscure it might be, would have exposed uh, me as a sinner. But the idea of the law is, and the reason that it's still in play in, in the world today is that it is designed to expose every person as a sinner is less than perfect and thus unacceptable in and of ourselves for heaven. And that's important. That's an important ministry of the law and of the Holy Spirit. I was talking with a, a dear brother a couple of weeks ago, and he was at work. And um, one of his co-workers came up to him, a woman, and she said um, she was very excited about the fact that she was going to this Sunday start going to church. And this brother said to her, he said, well, you know, Christianity is very, very simple. All you need to do is just admit that you're a sinner. She said, wait a minute. What are you talking about? So here she's going to go to church, and I don't know what the expectation of is the church that she's going to go to, but people really get in a huff over being exposed as sinners. By the time I, I mean, I, I had a little bit of a church background and all, but by the time as an adult I walked into a church and I heard that God's assessment of me was that I was less than perfect, it was like, okay, point number two. But that's just me. Some people come into a church and they hear that they're a sinner. And, oh, my, it's like somebody dropped the A-bomb in the room, you know. And most often because they don't understand what sin is. Sin is just being less than perfect. And that imperfection separates me from a relationship with God. Because, yes, God is that holy and he is that perfect. And heaven is that holy of an environment. And so the law of Moses reveals us to be sinners. And you take the perfection of those 613 commandments of the law of Moses, and you put them up against any human life, and I'll tell you, they're going to do one thing. They're going to show that that life is crooked. And that's what it's intended to do. There, Paul wrote in Romans 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's why the law is likened to a tutor or a schoolmaster by Paul. A schoolmaster is someone who teaches something to someone. And the great lesson that the law of Moses teaches to everyone, that great something is that each of us are sinners. And 
And then, and the law of Moses teaches us that, and all day, every day, it drives home the same point. It has us write upon the blackboard in the classroom over and over again, I am a sinner, I am a sinner, I am a sinner. And the law of Moses communicates to the whole world, you are a sinner, you've been less than perfect in, in life, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you cannot earn your way into heaven, you need need a savior you need a savior you need a savior you need a savior don't even think about getting into heaven on the basis of your own works you are already disqualified now that's an important ministry and even as i spoke about a little bit earlier and in your own contacts with your own family members in your own friends in your own classmates and your own neighbors getting people to think that and realize that they are sinners in the seriousness of sin and that sin needs to be addressed and that sin needs to be forgiven. This is like the great blank that is in most people's lives. So why would they accept a Savior? Why would they listen to an offer of salvation if they don't realize that they need to be saved from something? And so the law of Moses, it prepares a heart for the good news of Christ, and that is he is the Savior sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. But once I put my faith in Jesus for salvation, then the law has finished its job. Paul wrote again to the Romans, chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, for everyone who believes. And the reason putting my faith in Christ as my Savior and as my Lord is the end of the law, uh, end of the law of righteousness is because when I put my faith in Jesus, then Jesus' perfect righteousness is put to my account. And that and that righteousness can never, ever be improved upon. So he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so he did. How did he do it? He fulfilled all of the law of Moses. He kept every commandment during the three, 33 and a half years of his, his entire life. He fulfilled the law of Moses by fulfilling every Old Testament type in the sacrifices and in the offerings and in the temple and in all of, all of that that's in the Old Testament. He fulfilled all of it. He came in and demonstrated himself to be the substance of which all of those things were a shadow. And he fulfilled the Old Testament prophets by fulfilling each of the prophecies that they gave associated with his uh, first coming. He declares there, you, you notice in verse 18, <clears throat> a little more fully that every single one of God's Old Testament scriptures are one day going to be fulfilled by him. Uh, they are going to come to pass. There are prophecies given concerning Jesus that have to do with the kingdom age, have to do with eternity, have to do with heaven and all. Those Jesus recognizes even here as he speaks in verse 18, the recognition that when he came in his first coming, he would not fulfill all of the prophecies but that later he would fulfill the rest of them in his second coming. It is important to notice in verse 18 his condemnation of anyone who would teach others to live a life below uh, the standard of righteousness that's contained in the law of Moses. And uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were doing that. 
And, and so the Jewish religious leaders were accusing uh, Jesus of doing and teaching against the Old Testament scriptures, but the Jewish religious leaders were teaching their own disciples to do so, and that's what Jesus is, one of the things that Jesus is rebuking here in this passage. And uh, religious leaders can get very, very crafty. And uh, you know, it's a funny thing. It's a confession. I'll make a confession right now. Make a confession. Should I make this confession, Lord? I don't know. They're all ears. Everybody who's come from the Catholic Church, we all know we're in the confessional box right now. Pastor Damien's going to make a confession. It'll be ten Our Fathers and five Hail Marys. You study the Bible long enough. And you teach it long enough. And you know how to work it. At this point in my ministry, I know how to take a passage of Scripture and teach it in such a way that it teaches something other than what the passage says. And I know how to do it in a way that 95% of the audience will not recognize what I've done. And I fear the ability to do that. And that's why sometimes preachers get goofy after they've been at it for such a long time. They get this option that they didn't have in the early years. And the Jewish religious leaders were doing this kind of stuff. The Word of God wasn't just something that was simple and you preached it and this is important. And I don't have to make it appealing or attractive in my own way. I don't want to make it say what I want to say. I want to just deliver what God has to say. And then all of this kind of stuff gets complicated. And it got complicated and it got wrong for the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day. I'll give you an example of how they established traditions that allowed a person to purposely disobey God's word on a technicality. The law of Moses taught clearly Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord is giving you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honoring your father and your mother in that culture included taking care of them if they fell into some kind of difficulty in the course of their life or if they needed help in their old age. But when enough people within kind of the Jewish community didn't want to keep this commandment. It was burdensome to be honoring their father and their mother in this kind of way. And the word kind of gets back to the Jewish religious leaders and all. And about this, the religious leaders, they established the tradition of Korban to get around it. And they taught that if you had an elderly father or mother who was now in a place where they needed to come under your roof and to be fed and to be cared for and to be tended to, and yet they are now an inconvenience to you, that you could then, you could declare all of the wealth that you have, all of your money, all of your food, all of your clothing, all of your dwelling, you could go to the temple and declare it dedicated to the Lord, Corban to the Lord, so that when your mom and dad come to you for five bucks, you would be able to say to them, I'd love to give you five bucks, but I don't have a penny. Everything I owe has been dedicated to the Lord. Monsters! But it's what they were doing. And it's one of the things that Jesus is condemning in 
verse 18 there. They invented a technicality that allowed for the willful disobedience of a clear command of the law of Moses. And they did a bunch of this kind of stuff. And so Jesus denounced them. But teachers, all the way into this age, anyone who would take and teach the Word of God, claim to represent God, and then then deliberately explain away the demands of God's Word upon their lives to a congregation, relax the standard of God's Word to accommodate kind of the carnality of the age or whatever Christianity is. I want you to notice in verse 20 that the reason the law of Moses is not the standard for our righteousness or our behavior as Christians is because Jesus calls us to live a life that's even more righteous than the one that's described in the law. Jesus does not call us as his disciples to live a life that is less righteous than the righteousness contained in the law, but to live a life that is even more righteous than the life that was demanded in the law of Moses. And the Christian life is not less demanding than the law of Moses in terms of righteous behavior. It is even more demanding. It demands an even greater holiness of our lives. I'll give you an example. We'll get into it uh, next time. But the law of Moses, it supremely emphasized outward behavior. Uh, Not always, but supremely, that was the emphasis upon it, upon uh, how we're to conduct ourselves uh, outwardly. And Jesus condemned that when he spoke to the religious leaders about the fact that they washed the outside, but the inside of the cup is, you know, full of gunk and all of these kind of things. They spent their whole time trying to appear righteous to men, but inside, he said, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus, his demands of us is not only that our outward behavior be righteous, but our inward heart, our inward mind, our inward motives be right as well. Again, he isn't calling his disciples to be something lesser than the law of Moses in terms of holiness and godliness, but to be something much, much more. Again, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to uh, see that he acknowledged that the law of Moses prohibited murder. You think about the sin of murder against another person, the worst thing that you could do to another person to end their life, the one thing that they have. I mean, the most important person, thing that a person possesses in life apart from God is life. And so the Old Testament law, the law of Moses prohibited murder, but then Jesus went on further in his demands upon us and said, not only are we not to murder, but we're not even to be angry with a brother because anger is at the root of most murder. And so often some Christians want to put other Christians under the law of Moses And there's a lot of this going on, a lot of messianic stuff happening right now. But some Christians have this this perception of Christianity, the New Testament covenant, that somehow we're all just skating by, that we're just spiritual slackers, 
that people that were really serious about God, I mean, they really were sober about the things of the Lord. Those were the Old Testament saints. I mean, that's what holy living was. And it's completely lost upon them that what God calls us to as Christians is to not only live a life up to the standard of the law of Moses, to live a life that is outwardly right, not to murder another person, but then not even to allow anger to rest within our heart and anger that can then lead into murder. So Christ isn't calling us to live some kind of, okay, I know I demanded a lot of people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're going to take a recess and we're going to get kind of a kinder, gentler, more carnal, easy to get along with group of saints. And uh, and so my demands are going to be less of you. Some people have that idea about about. Uh, all of it. And so often Christians, and I think especially uh, Christian leaders, are afraid that if you don't keep a person under some kind of law, either the law of Moses or some man-made law, then they're going to become lawless. And they won't become lawless because we are under a law as Christians. We are under the greatest law a person can be under You know what that law is called? It's called the law of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8. The law of the Spirit is essentially the law that the Holy Spirit brings into my life as a Christian. There's a lot of things in life that the law of Moses did not address. There is nothing in life. Nothing that you face as a Christian that the law of the Spirit does not address. And what is the law of the Spirit? It is the law of the Holy Spirit living inside of us and speaking to us personally about what we ought to do or ought not to do in any situation that we find ourselves in. And you've experienced it as a Christian. Today, you know, you go to the movies or you look at what's at the movies. And I'm still so bummed. The two movies that I wanted to see in this spring was Paddington and Cinderella. And... The whole time they were at the theater, my life was so busy, I never got to the theater to see them. So I bought a TV as big as my living room, so I'll have the same feeling. I'm just kidding. But I wanted to see both of those on the big screen. So um, uh, I digressed. So we've got these movies, and they've got, you've got an R rating, you've got a PG rating, PG-13, you've got a G. They didn't know anything about those things in those days. And so the Bible doesn't say, okay, is it like an R? Okay, an R out, but the PG-13, but I mean, is it the violence? Or, or can you do, or the, what in the whole, and is it, is it just the G or what? And all these things that, and all. And all we need to do is sit down in front of the television. Sometimes people say, well, now you need to ask yourself. Is you're watching what's on that television. If Jesus was sitting right next to you, would he want to be watching that? I'm not putting that down. I think it's a great thing to consider. But he is beside you and me watching that television <laughs> in the form of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you sit and you watch something, and we've all experienced it. 
and God the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit. He doesn't need to say, okay, Leviticus chapter, you know, this and this. He says, turn it off. And that's the law of the Spirit. You're in a conversation that starts to move into slander or gossip or something that's off color or whatever it is. It was fine up to that point. Do I stay in the conversation? Do I not stay into it? What is all of this? And the Holy Spirit inside you, the law of the Spirit says, excuse yourself from that conversation or redirect it. It's the law of the Spirit. And it's not always in a negative. Sometimes you go and you do, we do something good in a situation. We help somebody with a flat tire or whatever the deal might be. Or we say something encouraging to a person or we're uh, influential in a good way in a conversation or whatever it might be. And you walk away and the Holy Spirit then speaks to you. There's an afterglow to that experience. And the Holy Spirit says, that was nice. I like that. Good job. What is that? It's the law of the Spirit. It's the law of the Spirit. We have the greatest law that a person can ever have living and right inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit who then takes us and conforms us into the image of Christ and produces a holiness within us that isn't just outward, but that is also inward. Aren't you thankful for the law of the Spirit? You know, every time that happens, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. God, from on his throne, has done something personal and individual in our lives. So people don't have to worry, pastors or any other Christians, to worry that somehow Christians are going to head into some kind of carnal, you know, abuse of grace kind of relationship uh, because they've become a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to lead us into an even greater holiness. And holiness is a wonderful thing, by the way, and he does it by the law of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't take... The, the law of the Spirit takes us into a life that is more demanding than the law of Moses. And because it is more demanding in terms of holiness, it takes us into a life that we wouldn't otherwise know in terms of its glory. And I'll close with this. What makes the law of the Spirit, one other thing that makes the law of the Spirit different than the law of Moses is, the law of the Spirit gives us the power to then obey the promptings that he gives to us. And the law of Moses never did that. And the Apostle Paul spoke about that, about the fact that the law was weak through the flesh and that it set the standard but did not supply us with the power to keep the law. That's why the law condemns us and exposes us as sinners. But the law of the Spirit does all of that prompting, that wonderful living all day, every day work in our lives. Isn't it a miracle? And then he provides us with the power then to obey those promptings. Well, we'll stop there tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll look to pick it up. In the next major section of the Sermon on the Mount, next week. Lord, we thank you so much. For our salvation, we thank you for the privilege of being your disciples. 
We thank you that you would take the position of the teacher and sit and then teach the sermon with authority to your disciples, looking through 2,000 years of history right into this room tonight. And Lord, we thank you that you instruct us with your eye yet on the multitude and the greatness of the need that is out there in the world. And we ask that you use our time in this Sermon on the Mount tonight and then all of the next couple of Sundays that we'll spend studying it to fashion us and to form us, Lord, into your kingdom so that when the greatness and the messiness of the need of the world all around us comes to us as your disciples in the way that they came to you 2,000 years ago, that they would then meet you in us. And we ask for this miracle, Lord, to continue in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.